0: Welcome to the AGA Podcast, where we bring you small talk on big topics from within the world of gastroenterology. Thanks for being with us. Now let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the AGA Podcast, small talk, big topics. I'm your host, Matthew Whitson, and today I am with CS. Hey, CS, how are you?
1: Hey, doing well. Hey, Matt. We're so excited to have Dr. Octavia Pickett-Blakely come with us as a guest on the show. She's the Director of GI Nutrition, Celia X Brew and Obesity Program at the University of Pennsylvania. She has lots of tips and advice and interesting things about her career to say to us. What are you most excited about, Matt?
0: I've known Octavia for a little bit. I am excited learning about nutrition just in the GI realm, kind of how she's built her career and really how she approaches these difficult patients. I think that's what I'm most excited about. I just know she has words of wisdom for everyone. I don't know. What about you? Are you excited about that? Are you excited about something else?
1: I think definitely words of wisdom, how to talk to patients. And I think for me, when I say I'm in gastroenterology, people, whether it's patients, family members, or people you meet on social media, just friends and say, hey, what do you think about this diet, the colonic cleanse? The detox, juice cleanses. And I feel like just because I'm a gastroenterologist, people are expected for me to give meaningful, insightful, scientific back content on it. But I don't think I got that much education on these during my training. So she has some great advice for that too.
0: No, I, I think that's true. I think I get asked all the time what my advice as a GI physician is. And it's something I wish I knew more about, but I mean, it's very hard to keep up with every trend out there. So knowing what sources actually to refer patients to and stuff like that is also really helpful. I'm just, I'm excited to uh, see what she has to say.
1: Sounds great. So without further ado, Dr. Octavia Pickett-Bakley.
0: All right, let's get started. So Octavia, if you don't mind, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your career?
2: Sure. I am in my 10th year of faculty at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, I'm a gastroenterologist with a focus interest in GI-related nutrition and nutritional disorders. My clinical practice, I care for patients along the nutritional spectrum, anywhere from intestinal failure, short gut syndrome, all the way up to obesity and bariatric surgery complications. And uh, my clinical practice also aligns with my research and teaching interests nutrition as well.
0: So I think it's fair to say that's not the standard GI pathway to end up with that career. So how did you end up being drawn to this? How did uh, you end up wanting to pursue this with your academic scholarship practice as well as your clinical practice?
2: I originally went to medical school to be a neonatologist. And what I thought a neonatologist was I knew what a neonatologist was. It was sort of a pediatric specialist who cared for extremely ill, critically ill uh, newborns. And that came from an experience early in high school when I volunteered at the Children's Hospital in D.C. And I worked in the neonatology department. And much like many um, aspiring doctors, you sort of want to be like the people who you really look up to and the people who you really like. And uh, I worked in the neonatology division and I actually worked under psychologists and just sort of tells you how much I knew about PhDs and MDs at the time. I didn't recognize that the psychologist, I called her Dr. Glass and she was Dr. Glass, but she actually was a PhD psychologist anyway. But the group that I worked with, Dr. Glass was, you know, caring and smart and I wanted to be like her. So I thought I wanted to be a neonatologist. Fast forward to medical school and uh, in our First and second years when we were doing pathophysiology, I was particularly drawn to GI, and our course director was Alessio Fasano, the world famous pediatric gastroenterologist, and his expertise is in celiac disease. And you know, sitting in lecture, watching how enthusiastic he was about GI physiology, I was drawn to GI, and I did well in it, but I still didn't think I was going to pursue it as a career. So fast forward to clinical rotation. And I was on peds. I love surgery, by the way. That was my first rotation. (laughs) And I was thinking to myself, "How? I had no idea I was going to love it so much. You know, what am I going to do? And then I did internal medicine. And I really liked internal medicine. But I was thinking, I like doing stuff. Like in surgery, we could actually do stuff. And, but I said, you know, but I'm here for pediatrics. Let me put all that stuff aside. And then when I did my pediatrics rotation, I saw a circumcision and that was it for me. I knew that (laughs) pediatrics was not for me.
0: The circumcision is what broke you from your dream?
2: I'm sure you were looking for something very much more professorial than that and more, you know, like enlightening. But I, that baby screamed, that mother screamed. The medical student, Octavia Pickett Blakely, screamed, and I I knew it wasn't going to be peas for me. And so, you know, I kind of went through my rotations and back and forth, and I'm not sure if it was a GI rotation. I didn't do a GI rotation at home. I went to the Mayo Clinic. The Mayo Clinic was sponsoring these away rotations, and I went to the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. And I did a one-month rotation there, four different attendings, a different attending every month. But one fellow that I worked, you know, closely with because it was just he and I and the attending on the team. And that's when I fell in love with GI. And as far as what part of GI, you know, how I ended up with nutrition, when when I reflected back on the rotations and the pathophysiology, I recognized that, you know, the, the fundamental purpose of the GI tract is absorption and digestion. Yes, it has its, you know immunologic functions. But the the sole reason why the GI tract is here, the primary reason is for digestion and absorption. And so I thought that I would just, um, you know, stay to the original purpose of the GI tract. And, And nutrition is a natural extension of that. So it just made sense to me. And since the physiology made sense, I liked it. There was a lot of cognitive, you know, a ton of cognitive Cognitive work in GI, and also, you know, there was the sort of interactive and, you know, doing part of it with the procedures. It just seemed like a perfect fit for me.
1: How about the patient population? Did you find that it was one that was a draw for you as well, in addition to pathophysiology? Who do you see? Like, maybe what's a typical day for you at work now?
2: The patient population when I was in training didn't really resonate with me. Um, I What I did know is that I was interested in establishing longitudinal relationships, sort of short term wasn't really where I saw myself. So I did know, but I I did recognize that I like the blend. I like the blend of sort of you have an acute GI bleed, you deal with it, you manage it and then you know, you're okay. But then there are also patients that you sort of manage on the long term. So I did like the variety of it. And, and right now, my practice is a reflection of that. There are patients that come in that, you know, I diagnose them with celiac disease. And once they're sort of educated on what to expect, and, and how I long term manage patients, I usually see them on an annual basis. And then I have patients that require a bit more intensive follow up, uh, the intestinal failure patients, and I'm really following them closely as far as their nutrition goes. And so I'm seeing them maybe every three months or so. And then I have patients that are sort of more extreme, you know, longer term follow up and, and patients that I kind of see answer a question and then offer a consultation and then send them back to their referring position. So it's a, it's a very nice mix.
0: So Octavia, just kind of teasing that out a little further, when you were talking about nutrition for you, are we talking about just obesity management, or are we talking about TPN, short gut, micronutrient issues? Kind of where is that? Where in that nutritional spectrum is your practice?
2: So my practice encompasses the entire spectrum, and I'm I'm really proud of that. I consider myself a holistic GI nutrition physician, and that's sort of a, a probably a phrase that. A, a, term that doesn't exist, but I made up um, because I do manage patients along the spectrum. So I have patients who have intestinal failure or short gut syndrome. I think one of the issues with nutrition in the modern definition is that nutrition for many automatically conjures up thoughts of nutrition support. So that's once you already have a condition that has compromised your nutritional status and you need help and you need support. So Most people who think about nutrition think. And I could be wrong and I would love it if I'm wrong. But many instances, when we think about medical nutrition, we think about TPN, G-tubes, you know, intro nutrition support. And that is a part of medical nutrition therapy. But just as important and and potentially even more important is medical nutrition therapy um, as a preventative modality to prevent diabetes and hypercholesterolemia, coronary artery disease. There's medical nutrition therapy that is the sole therapy for disease, and celiac disease is the quintessential model of that. And then there are other conditions like glycogen storage disorders where we don't see a whole lot of that in the adult world. But in pediatrics, these patients, their diet, you know, PKU, their diet is basically their therapy.
0: just out of curiosity, in your practice, are you seeing more people coming in asking for dietary therapies as the primary therapy versus a medical therapy.
2: You know, we go on cycles in medicine, and I have a, a slide in one of the talks that I give that's, uh, you know, over the evolution of time, it's, you probably have seen this, it's like, you know, I have a headache here, you know, take this root, or, you know, I have a headache here, put this leech on your leg, I have a headache here, take this penicillin, and, you know, we sort of go through <laughs> And, and nowadays it's more, you know, I have a headache here, take this route, swallow this pill, do some yoga, get some acupuncture and start this diet. And, and I truly believe that all of those things have a place and all of them have a role in the management of patients. I will say that, you know, at a tertiary care center, most patients have already gone the route of medications and interventions and diagnostic tests and they come to me sort of looking for something different diagnostically and something different therapeutically. I will say I'm pleased that many patients have a working understanding that diet plays a role in everything, but the challenge is when when diet is evoked, specifically what measures need to be taken as far as diet and how to execute it. And I think in the medical community, I'm confident that many of us are attuned to the fact that diet uh, and nutrition matter, but the disconnect is how we empower our patients and how we educate our patients to execute dietary changes and dietary modifications and they're pretty simple things that that every physician, every, you know, medical provider can do, but where the time for that is, and just feeling comfortable with your level of expertise, that's where the challenge is.
1: And for your patients, do you find that they're very receptive and adherent to the dietary changes, or is more like, oh, this behavioral you know, sometimes it's tough to change behavior, something that they grew up with eating a certain diet. Now you're like, oh, you have this disease or without a disease or obesity or having, let's say IBD. How are your patients finding um, receptiveness to your, you know, your education for them? And how can us GIs or who's not specialized in nutrition help in that conversation to change behavior?
2: Uh, most patients that I see are incredibly receptive because most of the the reason that they're seeing me is because they're specifically seeking out you know that that counseling and that expertise. I will say that I can think about patient and patients in different uh, buckets. So there are patients who come to me who already have an incredibly restrictive diet, probably more restrictive than it needs to be, and I find more. It's more of a challenge to get those patients to actually liberalize their diets. So, you know, you have belly pain. You think that it's gluten, you omit gluten. You think that it's dairy, you omit dairy. You think that it's protein, you omit meat. You know, and so, and then what happens is these patients lose an incredible amount of weight, and they come to me that the scare is that there's something organic going on, and that I need to find, but you know, in 10 minutes, I can figure out that it's because of how restrictive the diet actually has become, probably because <laughs> of the functional disease that hasn't been managed or optimized, but that there's not some sinister smoldering, you know, metabolic process going on. It's, you know, you essentially eat air and uh, bread and <laughs> and hence your weight has gone down. And then the other bucket of patients are patients who are looking for improvement in their symptoms. They're looking for um, weight loss. And those patients are the ones who are really open and receptive to changes. I would say the vast majority of patients have some working understanding or some working knowledge of what modifications need to be made uh, in order to affect change. But again, the challenge is how to execute it. So my approach tends to be very broad and customized to the patients and where they are starting. So, for example, if someone has already done keto and paleo and zone and Atkins, I don't come at them with, you know, five fruits and vegetables and portion control, because I understand that that patient is starting from a very different place than the patient who when we do their diet recall, fast foods and prepared foods and lots of sodium and no water. I start from a different place with those patients. The main tenets of my counseling are consistency. So when you make changes, set a goal for something that you can consistently adhere to, not a thousand calories for a month. And then after a month, you're so angry that you end up eating 2000 calories a day. Realistic goals. And that is if you drink, and Matt has seen patients with me like this, if you drink five sodas in a day. I'm not going to tell you to stop your sodas because clearly there's some addictive behavior, some other psychosocial issue going on there. I may tell you for the first week, try to reduce by half and then set a goal for the next week to reduce, you know, by, you know, one at a time. So consistency sort of being incredibly realistic and incremental goals. We set incremental goals. So I And very rarely in my weight management practice do I say, first of all, I don't harp on the weight because everyone else is harping on it. I focus on patients being well, feeling well, having better energy and not succumbing to their comorbidities. So what good is it if you lose 50 pounds, but you do a crash diet and you're still eating tons of processed food and your blood sugars are still poorly controlled? My goal, I would rather you lose 15 pounds and have a better understanding of how to keep your blood sugars controlled, have better sleep habits, have a regular exercise regimen. So I focus on um, sort of incremental changes in behavior because by the time someone who's 55 comes to me, there's been a lifetime of habits and behaviors that have been built. There are cultural mores that play into it, their family dynamics. There are habits that are built that people don't even know that they have. You know, for example, I oftentimes ask about what the dynamics around food were in the home growing up. And if a patient tells me, I grew up in a family, there were seven children, you know, when the bowl of food went around, I wasn't sure, you know, if it was going to come around again, because there were so many people. So I grabbed the portion that I felt was going to satisfy me. That's a, I have a different approach to portion control in that patient uh, than to a patient who was raised like I was, that you couldn't leave any food, you couldn't waste any food. You know, we just, I was raised not to waste food. So my approach is very different in those individuals. And so I try to, my history helps sort of me gather the information so that I can customize the treatment plan for a particular
0: patient. So, Octavia, it seems like some of this advice you give patients is something that a generalist can also give. Mm -hmm. And some of this may require more time than the average GI has. So how do you, you know, when you're talking to community GIs or people entering practice or young in their career, what advice do you give those practitioners as to how to approach these patients to maximize the experience for the patient and the benefit for the patient?
2: So... You know, as in terms of the treatment plan and the approach from the practitioner, it is all about being realistic about your goals. So if you have a 20 minute visit and, you know, that even goes beyond gastroenterologists as family practitioners, as internists. I mean, time is is really short. And if you in, and I've seen studies where you survey physicians on why dietary counseling or behavioral modification counseling isn't provided, time is one of the big factors, particularly mindful of that what i would suggest is you set realistic goals for yourself so if this patient is coming back and they have a problem list of 10 things maybe 5 of the 10 things on that list are linked to diet and so maybe between yourself and the patient you can come up with one goal one thing to walk away from the visit with that the patient can execute and i build my practice on relatively frequent follow up I and mean, there's only certain there's only there's some things that just we can't even do just within the restraints of clinical practice. But generally, I follow patients about every three months, especially in the first year, just to sort of make sure that we hone in on those behaviors. And then after that, we can extend it. When you work alongside um, a registered dietitian, that really, really is the key. The bulk of the dietary counseling is happening with the registered dietitian. I am reinforcing what the dietitian is saying. And in these days and times, hiring a registered dietitian can be a challenge in terms of billing. And I recognize that realistically, most divisions or departments don't have access, but a key is partnering with perhaps a local dietitian that has their own practice and you develop some sort of a arrangement or agreement in terms of referring patients. And in that way, the bulk of the counseling can take place in the appropriate setting and you the, the physician's role is just sort of reiterating and reinforcing behavior changes that have already been discussed and following up. You know, when I see a patient on day day one or day zero, and oftentimes we're, the dietitian and myself are seeing the patient the same day. And then one month later, the dietitian is seeing the patient. Two months later, the dietitian is seeing the patient without me. And then three months we come back together and we both are seeing the patient. That's the model in my practice
1: sounds like it's a really a team effort in terms of causing change besides a registered dietitian are there other tips in making a successful career as a nutrition physician specialized in the realm um, in terms of training
2: there are a structured training programs across the country so there are last I checked around 10 or 11 one-year training programs where you, you know, it's like an extended fellowship. You go and you spend one year dedicated to clinical exposure as well as um, research exposure and nutrition. And since there are so few programs uh, at the time in my training, when I I sort of confirmed that I wanted to do nutrition, those programs weren't geographically close to me. And sort of there were other issues that kept me from doing one of those one-year programs. So what I did was looked at the syllabus of what those programs covered and just tried to reproduce that in my last year of fellowship. And my fellowship, I did my fellowship at Johns Hopkins, and they were incredibly receptive to the idea and very supportive. And so I looked and saw that okay, I need obesity and weight management exposure. And so we had a weight management clinic that I was able to rotate with. Just about every hospital has inpatient nutrition support, and I spent a good four months with our inpatient nutritional support team, which was run by a nurse practitioner, a few nurses, and registered dietitians who were actually phenomenal and taught me everything that I know, honestly. And then some of the other experiences like intestinal failure, those are um, more difficult because you have to be at a transplant center. So that experience I wasn't able to replicate in, in my training experience. But outside of doing one of the dedicated one-year fellowships. Looking and sort of looking at their curricula and determining how you can reproduce that in your own training program is an option. There also is a Nestle Nutrition Fellowship that is offered um, on an annual basis that I believe is one or two months. And you spend focused time to different institutions um, physically on site. And there's a scholarship component to that as well. And you get exposure to nutrition support. Parental nutrition support, inter nutrition support, and that's sort of, um, I I believe it's, um, sponsored by Nestle. So, and then there are other, there are other sort of, in in the day, in the age of COVID, there are other learning opportunities through, um, didactic lectures and, and things of that nature that one can obtain exposure. In my opinion, a clinical exposure is the best. So even outside of a fellowship, If there's a nutrition-focused faculty with, um, you know, with a practice that you could rotate with or shadow, then those experiences will be invaluable. And this should just sitting at the feet of the registered dietitians and getting a sense of their approach to diet counseling and how they approach patients. You can get a lot of experience that way.
0: So, Octavia, what you were talking about right there is a lot about the education for fellows and these one-year fellowships and... Really having the opportunity in your own fellowship to kind of tweak your curriculum, that flexibility isn't really available to everyone. So I guess my question is, first off, is nutritional education, is GI fellowship really the right time to start it? And really what should be done earlier? Because it feels like every specialty needs some component of nutritional training, surgeons and endocrinologists and primary care, and maybe even psychiatrists along the way. Um, or psychologists, if we're talking about your colleague from way back when, where is the role for nutritional education, and what should we be doing as a community?
2: So, nutritional education, in in my opinion, should begin at the very beginning, and uh, I would never say that fellowship is too late. You know, even at the attending level, it's never too late. But if you think about all of the the formative years in your medical education, if nutrition education starts at the level of postgraduate education there are there's been a lot of time where um, opportunities for optimizing integration of nutrition into the curriculum have been lost and it's my opinion that beyond medical education nutrition education is important it's a multidisciplinary multi-level uh, initiative that should begin at the very beginning of education so for medical students In the early years of pathophysiology, digestion and and absorption is introduced in the GI um, portion of pathophysiology. When you have your endocrine rotation, there's glucose metabolism, lipid metabolism, and cardiology. And so the fact that those concepts are introduced so early in medical education is, is a signal of how important it is to be continuously introduced. When you get to the level of physical examination, proper height and weight, anthropometric nutrition assessment should be included in the physical exam. We spend weeks and weeks listening to, um, you know, different patterns of heart auscultation and abdominal exam. But uh, it's just as important to be able to recognize fat wasting, muscle wasting, you know, eye findings with malnutrition, hair, skin, nails. So in my opinion, nutrition education should be introduced uh, very early. Even certain concepts such as, you know, in history, we spent a lot of time focusing on uh, getting information and sort of allowing that to inform focused physical examination in your assessment and plan. But elements of motivational interviewing are just as important to understand where patients are in their stages uh, of change you know, learning how to obtain dietary histories. So in my opinion, if I haven't made that abundantly clear, in my opinion, it's really, really important to emphasize that early in medical education. It's important in nursing education. It's important for our ancillary staff with medical assistance. You you I would say you have no idea, but you do have an idea how many times a patient comes in for a nutrition visit who is not weighed. You know, the listeners can't see the look on my face when, when I just you know made that statement, but it's it's true. To have a visit uh, where there's not a proper height and weight is like not having a blood pressure or a heart rate for me. So, needless to say, it's important. It's it's very important to start at the very
0: beginning. And just for listeners having seen that facial expression, I can attest that you were trying to hammer home a serious point. Mm -hmm, I was. Fair enough. So we've spent a a decent amount of time talking about education and kind of some of the motivated patients that you've seen and the advice you can give them. What are the things that patients are coming in with that are just inaccurate or or misconceptions? Like what are you seeing in your practice maybe that drives you a little crazy or that is just kind of so far-fetched that you have to spend time really re-correcting the idea?
2: I think, uh, you know, Because of the nature of my practice, one of the common, one of the most common clinical scenarios that I face is the patient with, that is on a gluten free diet who does not have celiac disease. I recognize and I'm aware of the the literature and the data on gluten free diets and the composition of gluten free diets. Um, I know that um, worldwide and especially in the US, gluten free diets are extremely popular for a number of reasons. And, and, and the lay public has, has picked up on that. I think the gluten-free diets, what I see in clinical practice, there's two different ways that they're executed. One way is you're on a gluten-free diet for celiac disease or for some other reason. Maybe you have autoimmune disease and it's been recommended by your rheumatologist. Maybe it's been recommended by your endocrinologist for, to help you with glycemic control but i see patients who execute the gluten-free diet and who use that opportunity to incorporate more whole foods into their diets to reduce their processed food intake to move more towards lean proteins and fruits and vegetables and those patients lose some weight they feel better they have improvement in their metabolic parameters and if they have celiac disease or celiac disease it comes under control and if they have other symptoms related to either Gluten or wheat products, they feel better. Then there's another group of patients who go on a gluten free diet for, you know, either because they think they may have celiac disease or they think they have non celiac gluten sensitivity, et cetera. And these patients move gluten free, uh, gluten containing processed foods to gluten free processed foods. And, and although, you know, they, the, the general goal is for reduction in, in gluten in the diet, the the basics tenets of a healthier diet really aren't executed so well. And some of their symptoms may improve, but the tough thing with these patients is that they actually gain weight because the calorie calorie density sometimes is higher in gluten-free processed foods and snacks because in an effort to make it more palatable, these foods sometimes can have a bit more sugar and, and so these patients gain weight, and and some symptoms may be better, but overall, they are not feeling better, and they're having a hard time understanding why they are not feeling better because they are on this gluten-free diet. Now, with the patients who have celiac disease, that can be for many, for any for numerous reasons. Um, for the patients who don't have celiac disease, it also can be as a result of other reasons, but I typically, pinpoint the fact that the diet, although it has removed gluten, it hasn't removed many of the other provocative agents like, you know, preservatives and high uh, content of sugar and fat that can be uh, provocative for gastrointestinal symptoms and whole body inflammation. So that's one thing that I um, struggle with a lot in practice, sort of trying to tease out a healthier or trying to emphasize the patient's the importance of a healthier diet and that gluten, although it is, you know, obviously the immunogenic agent in celiac disease and and perhaps also um, some percentage of patients with non-celiac gluten sensitivity, the holistic, the the other components of the diet can be just as harmful.
1: I think speaking of which, like you mentioned, holistic, view of the diet and not just focus on that gluten celiac part, I have other patients who come to me and say, hey, what are your thoughts on detox or a colonic cleanse or juice cleanse? Cilia, not necessarily celiac, but just they're like, oh, you're a gastroenterologist, although I'm here for you know something else. They specifically ask for a medical advice on something they see on social media that's trending. How should we counsel patients in that aspect? I
2: get a lot of questions about the detoxes and colonics as well. <laughs> a lot. I get a lot of questions in outside of the clinical arena and, you know, at family events, at socials, et cetera. And I think my approach, you know, and I, I guess I can say I'm pretty consistent. So if you go and have a colonic irrigation, which, you know, for the listening audience, I'm pretty sure everyone knows what this is, but you go and you go into an office And you lie on the table, you're, um, you know, you're awake and there's a catheter that's placed into the colon and there's basically fluid that flushes out. So it's a retrograde bowel (laughs) prep. And my answer usually is so the detox, so the, the colonic will be great. It'll get rid of colonic waste that is there. However, if you chase a colonic with processed food, high density food, you are essentially negating. Um, you know, what you just did, you're sort of washing out the 65 bucks that you just spent for the colonic. Similarly for detoxes and, and all detoxes are kind of different. Many of the detoxes are, you know, there are some that have components that claim that they flush the liver. That's the type of detox. And there's another type of detox that is essentially just high dose senna and uh, cascara that is uh, essentially a laxative. So that's an anterograde bowel prep. And again, it's the same thing. You may flush your insides and sort of cleanse the, the bowel of waste, but the real improvement or the, the real therapy is what follows. So, the what you put into your body thereafter is really what makes the big difference. And uh, I think a lot of people, I'm, I know a lot of people don't really connect the two. Um, it's just like if you, you get your ducks clean. For this winter. And apparently there's controversy on whether or not you should do that. I'd be I'm anxious to get anybody's advice <laughs> on if that's a, a good thing to do or not offline. But you get your ducts clean and then, you know, you run your chimney all winter and you don't clean it again for five years. You know, are you really, what what really was the effect of that initial clean? So that's how I approach colonic and detox.
1: So it sounds like generally you don't say that's dangerous or that's bad. You can do it, but really it's these long-term changes and also what you put in the body, connecting what goes in by kind of how you clean or what goes out with these short-term interventions. Does that sound about Well,
2: the caveat is that the the liver detox, I do counsel patients that you know these are supplements that are not FDA approved. There are case reports of, you know, hepatotoxicity from some of these agents. So patients have to be really, really proceed with caution when it comes to those those pills that claim to be liver detoxes. The ones that are essentially and usually like the smooth move teas and things of that nature, I will read the label. And usually typically the active ingredient is a laxative like a senna or a cascara. And considering that we use, um, you know, that in in practice on a regular on a routine basis I don't tell patients that they're dangerous now in high high uh, doses infrequently I do tell them about the potential of adverse effects with that but as far as colonics go I don't advocate for them but I just try to explain uh, to the patient exactly what they're what they're getting
0: are there other trends fad diets other things that happen on social media instead across the board that you think are actually dangerous that you have to tell a patient, no, this is a, not just a bad decision. It's not gonna get you the outcome you want, but you are maybe taking a risk by doing this.
2: I think my biggest concern, especially when it comes to fad diets and it's actually not a fad. It's sort of, extremely restrictive calorie diets. And so it it is a fad in the sense that it has a different name every 10 years, but it really is sort of shrouded. It's the same idea, shrouded in a different picture and a different person's name and a different celebrity who endorses it. But I, I do have, I do tell my patients to really exercise caution with extreme calorie restriction. And what I mean by that is very, very low, very low calorie diets that tend to be less than eleven hundred and less than a thousand calories a day. Now, for someone who is, you know, five one or five feet, that might be an adequate um, caloric intake. But for the average person who is five, 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 six, that type of calorie restriction um, typically is not sustainable um, for the long term. And there are studies that show that extreme reductions in energy intake resets your basal energy expenditure. So it resets it and reduces it. So this is why we see patients who, when they've lost a lot of weight, when they, you know, sort of slowly or when they quickly increase their energy intake, they regain the weight very, very quickly. And then they often will overshoot where they started because they're Uh, Basal energy expenditure has reset to be able, their body can function on a lower amount of energy. And so if they've been doing 1200 calories for six months and then they all of a sudden go up to 1700 calories, they will regain the weight because their body has been, has has become much more efficient and able to function on the 1200. And so that excess calorie ends up going towards storage and that's why they gain more weight and they gain it pretty rapidly. So that's I use that data to emphasize the importance of slow, sustained weight loss as opposed to rapid, you know, you will lose five pounds in a week um, and, you know, five pounds every week. Uh, I try to really emphasize the importance of slow weight loss as opposed to rapid, dramatic
0: weight loss. Are there sources of information that you've seen on social media that you actually have your patients look at because you find them to be valuable sources?
2: So it depends on the diagnosis or the patient. So, for example, for patients with celiac disease, I routinely refer them to beyondceliac.org. You know, that is a a reputable organization Mm -hmm. with medical professionals, physicians, scientists on their board. And I'm comfortable with the information that is presented there um, as scientific and evidence-based information. When it comes to um, to weight loss, I tend to use patient education literature from, for example, the NIH and the AGA uh, and reputable sources that, that I know are evidence-based and backed by science, uh, as opposed to an individual celebrity physician or an individual celebrity trainer. Not that I have anything against celebrity physicians and celebrity trainers. Maybe one day I'll be <laughs> a celebrity.
0: Uh, you
1: self-refer <laughs> to your website.
0: <laughs> We're going to be asking what your Twitter handle is later. So anyone that wants to promote Dr. Octavia pickett Blakely as a future celebrity physician, we can get that started for you.
2: <laughs> awesome. Awesome. <laughs> I guess I need to know what my Twitter handle is. <laughs>
0: that's correct you will need to know that information uh for later in the episode that is <laughs>
2: thanks for letting me know No
0: just giving you a heads up i guess mm-hmm. so as can we kind of wind down octavia we were talking a lot about kind of your practice as you're looking to maybe train the next generation of octavia pickett Blakelys, who do you think succeeds in this field what type of trainee? what type of physician how can they get involved
2: if you have a passion for wellness, health, you know, do well in this field. I thought cardiology was be an endocrinologist. That can be a surgeon. Um, you could excel in this field. If you have a passion and an interest in sort of understanding the physiology of the GI tract and applying the physiology to what's going on in the patient at the macro level, then you know, you'll do well in this field. Amazing when I was in med school, but the physics and it just didn't resonate with me. It just did not. It just, I can't say that it didn't make sense, but it just was a struggle, but somehow osmosis and electrolyte flux and sodium, potassium ATP pumps and, you know, Glucose absorption just made, it just made all the world of sense to me. And so not to say that someone who that doesn't make a whole lot of sense do, wouldn't do well in the field, but when, when these physiologic processes sort of come, if they come natural to you, then I think that you'll do, um, you'll do extremely well. Um, I don't like to oversimplify what I do because again, to me, it it comes naturally. There is an incredible amount of Research uh, going on with glucose metabolism, lipid metabolism, energy expenditure and nutrition. So I'm really excited about the direction of the field. And if if you um, like making an impact on the patient um, on a cognitive level and really thinking through what their anatomy is and how it's impacting what's going on with them, I think you do fantastic uh, in nutrition.
1: And then your career path, what do you think it's one of the best pieces of advice that you received?
2: I guess it would have to be, although I can't say that I followed it. It's like a good piece <laughs> of advice, but I can't say that I followed it. You know, in in terms when you're looking for a job and you're looking for a career path, find the person or find someone. No, I did. I did take this advice. Find the person who is doing what you want to do and replicate that. And I'll, I'll sort of, I'll, I'll elaborate a little bit on that. So when I was in fellowship, there was, and so this piece of advice came to me in my third year fellowship, my fourth year fellowship, when I was actually looking for a job. So it was after I had already done it. That's why I had a hard time answering the question. So in the second year, maybe my first year fellowship, I did the AGA um, sponsored a program called Investing in the Future. And uh, this is a program targeted towards increasing the number of underrepresented minority students who are interested in the field of gastroenterology. So I was a first year fellow and somehow I ended up on this panel with Andrea Reed, who's absolutely amazing, and uh, with a physician, a gastroenterologist named Dr. Jeanette Keith. And Dr. Jeanette Keith at the time, I think, might have been in Alabama, but she was a, clinic, a clinical clinical nutrition, gastroenterologist. And so I'm sitting on this panel and talking about what it's like to be a fellow and what my career path had been up until that point. And I knew that I was interested in nutrition, but I didn't know of anyone in the field who was doing that. And when she introduced herself and sort of who she was and what she did, I, you know, a light bulb went off. I was so, so excited to be on the panel with her. I found her in the bathroom I'm not going to say that I followed her there, but we both ended up (laughs) in the ladies' room at the same time. And i I would not advise anyone to do this. But I said, I said, I want to be like you. You have the job that I want to have. And uh, we established a, you know, we sort of kept in touch from that point on. So later on, when I was looking for jobs, I was told, you know, find the person that you want to emulate or you want to be closest like and and, and replicate that, and I had already done that. So that, to me, um, just sort of solidified and affirmed uh, that I was sort of moving in the right direction and doing the right thing. But I will say, as a caveat, in some instances, there is not a person who's doing what you want to do, or that is that is doing that solely. Sometimes people have elements of their career that you want to emulate, in there. And I will say that. If there's not a person, one person, but there are multiple people um, that have elements of the career path that you want to pursue. It is nothing there's nothing wrong with creating your own path and sort of fusing the paths of multiple people. So don't be I was I I was trained in the era of everyone did I B D, therapeutic endoscopy, IBD, therapeutic endoscopy, (laughs) I B D therapeutic endoscopy. And it was You know, it was like, if I could say IBD in French, I would. It was, you know, therapeutic endoscopy in Spanish. Like that was really, really what I was surrounded by. And I sort of held fast in in what I wanted to do and was able to, I just had to find a way to get
0: there. So wonderful advice and really speaking to the power of networking no matter where you are, I think.
2: I did not follow her to (laughs) (laughs) that I'm not a stalker.
0: Octavia, if someone wants to engage with you through an appropriate vehicle like Twitter or reach out to you on social media, where can they reach you?
2: Yes, my Twitter handle is at Blakely underscore MD.
0: Awesome. Octavia, thank you so much for being here. We learned, I know I learned a ton. I'm sure CS learned a ton. And we're just grateful to have this time with you.
2: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the AGA Podcast. To reach us, please email us at agapodcastgastro.org or follow us on Twitter at MJWitsonMD, at NinaNandyMD, and at CSCMD. Podcast production done by Resonant Recordings. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for listening and have a good one.